Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Well, good morning again. Uh, before we uh, move in, I did want to acknowledge uh, and just invite uh, your prayers for uh, Pastor James. He uh, was on a mission trip in Guatemala, came back, and a little bug came back with him, so he hasn't been feeling that well, but he's on the mend, and he's feeling better, but uh, just wanted to definitely offer that, which is part of the reason why uh, we are pitch-hitting for him today. Um, Also, uh, as we pray for that, I also want to just give another shout-out to the mothers in the building. Happy Mother's Day. And not only the mothers, but the aunties. The, hey, gotta give it up for the aunties, the grand, you know, all of that. You know, grandmoms, yes, mother figures. You know what I mean? All of those, um, you know, we think about Proverbs 31, it talks about a virtuous woman and all the things that are involved. But we also want to take a moment to also acknowledge that for some of us, Mother's Day can be a a difficult day um, because of either loss or tensions that it uh, brings out. Um, And so we want to also acknowledge that wherever you might be this morning, uh, we are praying with you. We want to cover that. And we want to also acknowledge um, that that can come with struggle. So let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that you tell us that you would be a mother to the motherless and a father to the fatherless. And so when we think about the love that our mothers uh, extended or those who were in our care, they are ultimately reflections of you. And we thank you for them. We thank you for those in this room. And we also pray that for those who this day brings about a sense of mourning, that you would bring comfort, that as a hen, you tell us in your word, covers and cares for her chicks, so you will do for us. And so we ask also that you would touch with a healing hand, uh, Pastor James, that you would uh, restore him to complete and full health and be with us this day as we look to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, amen. Uh, As Pastor Josh mentioned, uh, we have been going through this series, Hopefully. And last week, we went into Isaiah 40, uh, verse 31, and was talking about waiting and how challenging the process is of maintaining hope when I'm just waiting, and it seems like it's never happening and it's never coming around. And as tough as waiting is for hope, I think there's one thing that's probably even more challenging than waiting, and that is maintaining hope in the midst of injustice. Because of how connected our world is right now, across the globe and on our phones, we can see what's happening in every corner of the world. We are probably more aware of injustice than any people have ever been in the history of the world. 
We not only hear about the horrific injustices of the world, but we actually see it taking place sometimes in real time. Elementary school students fleeing from an active shooter at a school. Russian tanks invading into Ukraine. Sudanese citizens fleeing from their country as two generals fight each other in war. And George Floyd or Jordan Neely literally being choked to death. These injustices prompt many people to lose hope. And one of the main reasons why there's so much despair in our world is because we have more access to bad news than we do to good news. And it's hard to make sense of it all when you just see a constant deluge, one after the other after the other. And as a result, injustice is the greatest challenge to hope today. Many of us have friends, family, coworkers, associates who question the existence or relevance of God because there's so much suffering and injustice in the world. Anybody out there know what I'm talking about? Many of us in here, it may be like, well, it ain't just about my cousin or my friend. It might be me. I'm struggling with how to make sense of all of that. And that's why we need ancient and spiritual wisdom. And the good news is that we are not the first or only people to wrestle with how to make sense and how to maintain hope in the midst of injustice. In fact, Isaiah deals with this probably more explicitly and over the course of his ministry more than any other biblical prophet. You see, he lived in a time where his own people were being exploited and were exploiting the poor. The legislatures in Jerusalem were creating laws, they were creating laws that only benefited them and that harmed and oppressed others. Judah's rulers took bribes and participated in stealing land from those who didn't have an advocate and they did nothing to help the lowest and the least in society. Sound familiar? The strong violently attacked the weak. They created decrees to enlarge their own pockets at the expense of others. And as a result of all of that, that's why God was like, you can no longer represent me in the world. And so here comes Babylon, a global power that comes in and invades Judah violently taking their land and displacing their people. And this is the times that, and this didn't just happen in one moment, this is over the course of decades. And in response to all of this, we see Isaiah cry out about injustice, and we see God articulate his response to injustice here too. And there's a lot in these passages. I don't have time to get all in it, and so we're going to kind of jump in and just take a, a, a like little nuggets, but I really would encourage you uh, throughout the week to, to, to read more in these passages and even in the book of Isaiah. But today, we're just going to focus on a few verses here, and we'll start in verse 11 of chapter 59. 
Because this is where we start getting into the last leg of the book, and then we start to see the people's cries. And this is what it says. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. And it's interesting when you first read that and you go, we growl like bears. When I think of uh, a bear growling, I normally think of that in the context of being like, like aggressive and they're, and they're trying to attack. But in actuality, there are many reasons why bears growl. And usually it's because they feel pain, because there is a sense of being threatened and they have fear. That's primarily the reasons why. Somebody helped the bear. <laughs> the other reason is because, like, so then it says it mourn like a dove. And you go, well, what, what is that? And it was funny because even this morning, sometimes you'll hear, and, you know, this kind of cooing in the morning. And, I, you know, I used to think that was an owl. Those, those are actually doves. And they're called mourning doves, and it, it kind of sounds like a weeping, sad song. And so he's saying that this is what we sound like. This is what we, we're grieving about the injustice in our world. And it says salvation. Now, when it says salvation here, be clear that it's not just talking about a uh, ethereal, a, a spiritual experience. It's actually the word there, and especially in the Old Testament, usually refers to a physical deliverance a sense of being delivered from physical as well as spiritual harm. And so they're saying that we're crying out and there's nothing here for us. And so injustice creates a lack of hope. That's what injustice does. It, it, it creates a sense of despair to the point that I'm crying, I'm, I'm, I'm sobbing, I'm mourning, and I am struggling to find a sense in which there's anyone or anything that's going to change and do something about it. But not only does Isaiah speak to their condition, he also gets to the root of what is at the source or the, of the problem. The next verse, it says, for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart of lying words. So now you see Isaiah get into this aspect of confession here, and he's saying, This is why, this is where the injustice comes from. It comes from this sense of transgressions and sin. And this is where he takes a turn that's a little bit different than our culture. We don't tend to uh, like to talk about sin anymore or the sense of moral uh, condition anymore. And I, and I think when I was thinking about this, especially, and this is a, a long arc, but one of the key moments that's happened even in our recent times is after, back in 2001, after 9-11, this uh, moment happens when people are trying to make sense of this traumatic experience that we faced as a country of the terror attack and why did the people do it and then finding out that you know they, they have, there was religious re reasoning behind it. And then there were pretty much one of two different reactions. The first was to blame the religion of Islam for 
causing the attack, and it's kind of, and then blame anybody who looked like they could have been Muslim or Arab, and, and so you saw the rise of Islamophobia come up. You saw, I, I know having a name like Rasul, which is Arabic, I got randomly screened at the airport every single time I got on the plane. And so there was this sense in which they're the problem, and so that's the issue, and we just need to eradicate that from our presence. That was one uh, approach steeped in bigotry. The other reaction was to identify any claims of absolute truth at all, any religious system as the problem. The, the, the fact that, uh, that somebody had a, a worldview that dared say that we understand what God wants, that's the problem. And as a result of that, people began to retreat from any type of spiritual or supernatural underpinnings for why to do things or to appeal to people. And the reality is both sides got it wrong. Because it is impossible to coherently appeal to any universal human rights or justice without universal morality. It's a non-starter. In other words, if I just try to say something is just and you should not be doing that, and the person says, well, why shouldn't I be doing that? And it's like, and I got nothing to appeal to. It's like, well, that's just your opinion. The only way to appeal to a, a, a real sense of justice and truth is connecting it to someone else who made the rule that's outside of either of us individually. And now, now hear me clearly. I, I, what I'm not saying is that there are not people that people who don't have faith can't be moral. In fact, I've seen too many times that oftentimes there, I've met people who have no faith who have more integrity than people who claim their faith all the time. So what we're not saying that, but what we're saying is that they're borrowing that morality outside of the very system that they actually hold to. They're borrowing it on credit. This is what Frederick Nietzsche said. He said, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. Nietzsche was no evangelist at all. He was an atheist, but he also recognized the, the way that you couldn't really claim this aspect of justice in any real way if you weren't claiming any supernatural truth that goes underneath it. But even if we get to the place of acknowledging, okay, there is a truth and there is a justice, the, the other part of the problem is that in our polarized society, we see how both sides, how human tendencies tend to focus on one aspect or the other. And this is another reason why we don't tend to put iniquity and sin in the same category of injustice. You see, you have those of more of a conservative ilk politically who will focus on personal piety, on individual morality, and, and, and the theory is that all that matters to determine outcomes in income and in education and any other factor is how willing is someone to work hard enough. And that is the, the full extent of the theory of how to understand society. So they will reject the idea that there is systemic racism or there is systemic you know, misogyny. Or, or, no, those things don't exist. It's just about people who work harder than others. And you know, the issue was their culture. See, they didn't have fathers in the home. But on the flip side, you have progressives who people of that ilk politically who, who tend to associate every ill in society with a so only, solely a social structural evil. In this perspective, there are no individuals who sin just because people are victims of an unjust system. 
there can only be victims and not, and, and, and not actual sin. So you, you see this every once in a while. I remember a time when there was like in San Francisco, there were these rash of people breaking into department stores and just like looting the place. And then you see online people who of this ilk, they'd be like, I mean, well, you know, corporate greed though. And you're like, I'm sure the person that busts up in there and just started to walk out and still weren't having some intense critique of global capitalism. That wasn't the motivation. They wanted some kicks. It was really that simple. And, and what Isaiah, Isaiah does here is he rejects both the conservative and progressive definitions by saying it's all of that. It's all of it. Our, our sins testify against us, Isaiah says. But those sins also speak oppression. You see, he, he ties them together because he, he maintains individual agency that we have, but also recognizing that there are things that individual sinners put in place to make it life harder for some people that are not like them and easier for others. Iniquity, though, we have to understand, is the source of injustice. See, you need the right diagnosis in order to get the right prescription. And the diagnosis, listen to this clearly, of Isaiah is that injustice is a spiritual problem as well as a social problem. It's both. But one of the other things that we have to address in realizing the modern uh, resistance to this way of thinking is because people look upon the failures of those arbiters of spiritual truth, in other words, the church, and see nothing but injustice over the last few centuries. Didn't the church justify slavery? Didn't the church justify a lot of the wrongdoing and the, and the evil that we see? And in the last six years, in particular, as we have seen many church leaders and authority uh, be exposed for victimizing those in their congregations, supporting policies that are unjust, and giving cover to the corrupt way that our gun violence epidemic has not been met with serious attempts to solve it, just thoughts and prayers. As, as we've seen those things, it's created a sense of distrust in spiritual solutions. But again, this is where Isaiah helps us because this isn't new. If we go back to chapter before in Isaiah 58, look at what he says and as he reports what the people are saying. Uh, in verse 3, it says of Isaiah 58, why have we fasted and you, not, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? The people are asking God and they're holding him to account to say, look, God, we fasted and you're ignoring us. You're not seeing it. We've humbled ourselves. We've done all the spiritual rituals. We've come into the temple. We've prayed. We've done these things. The people ask God, why aren't you hearing us in light of us doing our religious duty? And look at God's response to them. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard to be heard on high. He goes on to say, I, I hate your fast. I hate your worship services. I hate your sermons. Because while you are going there saying with your mouth, worshiping me, you are at the same time oppressing those that are your neighbors. And, I, and as a result of that, I'm blocking you like an ex who's playing on your phone. Like a troll who's following your account. I, I, I just don't want to hear it. 
So this issue of religious people cloaking injustice in sanctified speech is a tradition and a tale as old as time. But sadly, that truth has been used to ignore spiritual truths in Scripture. (laughs) And so the funny thing is, it's right there in the text that we know that one of the best ways that the enemy will try to discredit God is to to cause people to be wolves dressed like sheep to actually muck up the process. And I, I, I experienced this. This is part of my own personal story. My father was uh, 21 years old when uh, he and my mom, you know, had me. She was 20. And he grew up in church, but had grown frustrated at, this is in the 70s, where there's all this revolution talk and transformation happening. He saw nothing about that in his church. And so when he started to hear people like Malcolm X talking, Elijah Muhammad talking, it got his attention. And so he ended up joining the Nation of Islam. And one of the only pictures that I have of him before he passed is this picture. And you can see Elijah Muhammad's face on the, on the dresser right next to the bed. And this is what Elijah Muhammad famously said in his book, uh, The Message to the Black Man. Allah, AKA Wallace D. Fard, that's a whole nother thing for another day. <laughs> can't go there right now, said that Christianity was a religion organized and backed by the devils for the purpose of making slaves of black mankind. I also bear witness that it certainly has enslaved my people here in America. So what Elijah Muhammad and others did was they saw the distortion of Christianity in the U.S., and it's used to justify oppression and then conflated it with the actual Bible and teachings of Christianity. And, and, they, and say, look, I, I am rejecting this thing that I'm being told is the truth about this faith. And I am seeing that it's only a tool for manipulation. So as a result of that, it's a white man's religion that you owe it to yourself, black man, to reject in favor of the true religion, he would say, which was the nation of Islam. And Tragically, that lie, that myth, took root and has continued to take root. But if we go to the text, we see that, there, that we see a different story. But the, but the point here is that injustice in the church intensifies hopelessness. Because even though his conclusion was wrong, the observation of the historical facts of how people use Christianity to, as justification for their oppression, that actually happened. And so as a result of that, that created and intensified a sense of hopelessness that people were feeling. They didn't feel like they could get answers in the church. But look at what Isaiah says next in verse 15, back in in 14 and 15, back in the next chapter, in chapter 59. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. There's a couple things to observe here. Once once again, notice how he's talking about justice, which is the social, social righteousness. It's being right toward others especially individually and corporately. And he connects that, that justice is turned away, but then he also says righteousness, right? And that both of these things are interconnected. So you can't just talk about 
the destruction that pornography does to an individual and the way that it objectifies women. You also have to look at an entire system that is actually an industry that's bigger than Hollywood, taking in over a billion dollars a year and exploiting those who are vulnerable in order to do it. You have to look at both of those components. And what he says is though, people don't wanna hear that because it's associated with the sense of over-moralization. And so as a result of that, truth itself stumbles in the public square. What he's connecting this to is that injustice depends on lies. Oh, we've seen this so much recently that, that you can't continue to have injustice and allow people to go along with it unless you start lying to them. So as a result of that, truth is lacking in stumbles in the public square. We see this over the time. I mean, there, I mean, I don't think, when did we start hearing the phrase like misinformation, right? Like now it's everywhere, right? Where people will deliberately lie and, and tell you people like Jamie Foxx is in a hospital fighting for his life and I'm over here praying. And then I'm like, wait a minute, he ain't even in a hospital. <laughs> Messing up my day. <laughs> they lying in the public square. And, and, and that's a more innocuous one, but then you start getting into things like the election was stolen. The, 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 the systems were rigged. And as a result of that, you have a duty to put the person who lost back into power violently if necessary. You see, this is truth stumbling in the public square. Spiritually, we've seen this the same way with the curse of Ham to justify slavery or Holocaust denialism to justify anti-Semitism. Like, but look at God's reaction, and this is so important. It says, the Lord saw it and it displeased him in that there was no justice. Contrary to the rumors, which again is misinformation and lies that says that religion is just to use to subdue those who are uh, oppressed and just to keep them calm and acceptable in their situation. He makes it very clear right now. God hates injustice. Hates it so much and it causes him and it provokes him to act more than any other sin that we see. Why did the exodus happen? Because he heard the cries of the people being oppressed. Why did the ex exile happen? Because he saw the same people that he had previously delivered doing the same thing. There is a sense in which it's clear that God hates injustice and that sense of exploitation. Sin is not a victimless crime. As much as and this is helpful sometimes. Like, if I'm struggling, and you're like, when you're about to do that thing, realize, like, I mean, look at how many marriages and families have been destroyed because of something like adultery. Sin is not a victimless crime. So what does God does about it? Because this, this is where the, okay, so if I say God hates injustice, right, and he's God, and you're telling me he's all about then what's he going to do about it? And why is it still here? Why, why does it still happen? And, and, and there's some important Factors to take into place, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. We just can look in the text to see what God says he's going to do about it. We're going to fast forward, though. We'll see why in a second to Luke chapter 4, verse 16 through 22. And this is Jesus' first announcement of his role and purpose on earth. And it reads, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as it was his custom, 
he went to synagogue to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down in all the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Do you see the tension that is built up in this moment. They had heard about this, this teacher. They had heard about this miracle worker. And all of a sudden, early on, he shows up and he announces himself. And of all the texts he could have ever chosen to pick up, he goes to Isaiah 61, which is essentially the response and the answer to all the things we've been talking about in Isaiah 59. And he reads this text which announces himself, and then just in case they were missing it, he wasn't just giving them a devotional thought. He says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the one you were waiting for. I am the one who's going to do these things, to proclaim good news to the poor, recovering of sight to the blind, set captives free. And that's why you see Jesus time and again healing the blind and the sick. That's why we see Jesus time and again speaking to the poor, blessing those who were on the margins, women, those children, all those who were in society considered to be less than. He elevates deliberately as a result of announcing himself as the true king. What does this mean as a center pillar for Jesus' ministry? Well, this shows that those whom society has declared secondary receives the place of priority in the kingdom of God. In a society where, for example, black lives have been historically undervalued, we can know that we have an advocate in the person of Christ. For a society that oftentimes disregards mothers, we can say, no, actually, I elevate that role and responsibility above. Just because you don't have political power or financial clout doesn't mean that you're not significant in the kingdom of God. In fact, I'm gonna put you in the front since you've been in the back. But then don't miss this last phrase. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now you have to understand that usually prophets talked about the day of the Lord coming. And the day of the Lord was understood as when, when that day when, when, when God would make all the wrong things right. The only time that you see a year, that, that even that framework used in scripture is in Leviticus chapter 25 and it's referring to the year of Jubilee. 
You see, there was the Sabbath day that, that there was a day of rest in which people were supposed to not do work regardless of if you were poor or rich. You all had to rest and it was supposed to be an aspect. And even in the land and giving the land rest, the animals rest. And there was a justice implication of that. But then they had a Sabbath year every seven years where you, had, you, you, you couldn't even plant on the land. But then when you had seven years times seven, that's 49 years, there was a super Sabbath. And the super Sabbath would happen on that 50th year, the year after the seven times seven, and it was called the year of Jubilee. And on the year of Jubilee, it tells us in Leviticus 25, this was an incredible, holy, supernatural reset button. Anybody who had been in bondage because they couldn't pay their debts were supposed to be set free. Anybody who had lost their land because they had to mortgage their homes in order to sustain themselves with food, they get that land back. Anybody who in any way had been exploited, they got a holy reset button, loans forgiven, in, in, in order to get reset. And this was what they called the year of Jubilee. Why they call it Jubilee? Because it was celebration. Wouldn't you be celebrating if your loans was forgiven? If, if you woke up one day and they said, your credit card debt is gone, we understand what you went through some things, and now it's all over. And so what he's saying, that was the year of Jubilee, that was the year of the Lord's favor. And so what he's saying is, I am proclaiming to you the ultimate Jubilee, because I am fulfilling in myself all that was supposed to be a glimpse of in the kingdom of Israel. All of that is fulfilled in my kingdom. All those who have been exploited made right, debts forgiven with this financial crisis, pieces of land squandered or stolen away, gentrified, restored. Jesus is our hope for justice because he is the Jubilee. He is the hope for justice. And he didn't just talk about these things. Remember, this was the beginning of the ministry where he was going to proclaim it. And you have to understand that proclaim good news isn't just talking about with a word, but with his deeds as well. That's why he healed the sick. That's why he resurrected the dead. That's to show that the ultimate tyrant, the ultimate injustice of sin and death has no reign over the kingdom of God. The certainty of the believer's hope is not based on what we've done, but on what he's done. You see, this is one of the reasons why we struggle with hope, because if, if it's like, man, I, I hope I get that raise, or I hope I get that job, and ultimately, if, the, if that hope is solely based on your ability to achieve it, you know, some days you have good days, and some days you have bad days. So it's not consistent. But when, that's why in the Bible it talks about the hope. Somebody say, the hope. See, the hope is not just I'm hoping in something outside of myself. It's I'm basing this on the foundational reality that hope has come. And that because he rose again, that means even death can't hold and stop the dreams and the hopes that are coming my way. Yeah, that's good news. And then look at what happens now as a result. So you know, some of you will say, okay, well, that's great. Jesus, okay. That still don't help me understand what to do about injustice. We're getting there. We got you. Look at what happens at the end of Isaiah 58, right? After the people's complaints, right? That was when they was like, we're fasting and you're not doing anything. Look at how God responds. Is not this the fast that I chose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? 
Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. So, 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 he, so what he's saying is there's a role here for anybody who says that they are wanting to follow into this kingdom, to follow into this kingship. It's not just a matter of, okay, Jesus, you died, you rose, you healed, so now that's it. He says, no, there's actually a functionality here where even though I am the forerunner, I am the, the firstborn, so to speak, now there's a role for all of us in the family. We got chores to do, y'all. And those chores look like advocate advocating and act and activating to promote the king's justice in the world why did he do it that way i'm just going to do this quickly because you have to understand this is not just happenstance this was the plan all along in the garden it says that god created humans male and female in his image right and in that image to be his image bearers what he tells them to do is to go and fill the earth and to have dominion over it. And that dominion meant that we were supposed to be little images of God, ruling in justice, ruling in righteousness as we treated each other. And that, the, that would fill the earth with God's glory as we rightly, God, in, in a godly way, reflected and revealed his goodness. But when sin entered the world, iniquity caused injustice. So what happens? Cain kills Abel. And it just kept going on and on and worse. That the, so instead of reflecting God's image, we end up distorting God's image. So what he's saying, though, is that Jesus' resurrection, his life, death, his teaching, it realigns us to get us back to the place where we now can be mini-me's again. We now can have his spirit so that we can once again, through our life choices, through our bank accounts, through our actions, through the things that we, ways that we serve, through our words, we can then once again restore his glory by reminding people that they're also made in the image of God and doing justice. This is how Esau McCulley in his book, Reading While Black, which is a great book, says it. According to Isaiah, true practice of religion ought to result in concrete change, the breaking of yokes. He does not mean the occasional private act of liberation, but to break the chains of injustice. What could this mean other than a transformation of the structures of societies that trap people in hope hopelessness? Jesus has in mind the creation of a different type of world. And he's enlisting us to be a part of that new creation. Hope calls us to do justice. It's not just something we can aspire to and hope that the world changes. And as we look at the news, just go, mm, 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 that's such a shame. So what are we going to go do today? No, it's, it's a type of hope that is active, that it understands that we're supposed to be actively involved in God's kingdom establishment on earth as it is in heaven. You do know that that prayer is also a mandate for us. You can't be praying about something and then do the exact opposite. And this is a hope that we've seen transform our world already. One of the things that gets so lost in the veneration and the way that we think about the civil rights era, and specifically Martin Luther King Jr., is the fact that he was a pastor. And that this, he didn't just try to like say, hmm, I want to have a justice movement, so let me slap some verses on it because that's what's going to effectively reach my people because they're church. But it says that he sensed the sense of a deep calling and a conviction that what he was doing was biblical. 
And so even in the midst, people think the March on Washington, that happened in 1963. He lived five more years after that. And in many ways, things were getting worse in, in many measures, not better. And so people ask them, how do you maintain a sense of hope in the midst of so many discouraging disappointments? And this is what he said. We must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. Oh, that's a word for us today. That's a word for us today. When we, Because when we look up there, we see finite disappointments all over the place. And if I only have a hope that's as long as that temporary moment, then it's never going to sustain me. But if my hope lasts longer than that, because it's eternal, because he's eternal, because he's infinite, then it won't outlast the difficulties that I'm facing in my life. Well, as I close, you know, I want to give us opportunity to specifically think about what can we do to act on that infinite hope. Um, 2020, after the uh, murder of George Floyd, uh, Pastor James connected with uh, Pastor uh, Justin Matera and Zion Church, and we got together as leaders, Pastor Josh and I, and decided to host a rally to bring awareness and to advocate and demand justice to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, we thought it was just going to be a couple churches and maybe a hundred people or so. Over a hundred churches ended up joining us, thousands of people. And it was this interesting moment, I remember, where uh, there was this rowdy, more expletive lading protest that was happening on Fifth Avenue as we were kind of hanging out at Baltic about ready to start. And we thought, okay, well, you know, they're going to move on and then we're going to start our path. Well, apparently they had heard about the rally and made a sharp right turn and joined our group. And so we were like, well, they're here. We're now a thousand plus strong. What are we going to do? So we began to go th throughout our route. And our goal was to go to each different station like the police station and pray for God's justice. And would you know, and here in downtown Brooklyn, led by pastors, people not only respected, but were inspired by a move of what happened when the church showed up, diverse from different backgrounds, but showing up for justice. Well, that wasn't just a moment that sparked a movement that's called Pray March Act. And since then, we've been continuing to work. You know, after it stopped being a trending topic, after people kept moving on, we kept pressing forward. We now have three working groups that happened in Pray March Act, one focused on the criminal legal system and how do we actively activate change. And we've been learning and, and going through civic literacy to, to do that. Another focuses on housing reform and, and what can we do to make more of affordable housing in New York City a reality, amen, somebody. And another is looking at educational disparities. And we have those and we are learning together and moving. And we, I wanna urge you to get involved as an expression of hope. Next month, um, we are gathering right here in this building, this uh, Pray March Act, to host uh, the screening of a documentary on Juneteenth, Faith and Freedom, that I had the opportunity to put together. Yeah. By the way, just show y'all how hope works. Remember last week, some of y'all were here, and I was talking about how we hadn't heard from, you know, what was going to happen next. Well, we heard from the group that is uh, going to be promoting this to PBS stations this week, starting. Yeah. Yeah. God's doing something. And this film is about how did they maintain hope in the midst of some of the worst injustices? 
And so it is inspirational, but it's also informative. Because there is injustice in this world, but we must not lose infinite hope. And it's based on who, not a what. This last verse I'll just say briefly is James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. This is how he defines it. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see that again? Justice and righteousness. To meet the needs of the vulnerable and to keep it holy. The gospel is not either addressing systemic injustice or personal sins, it's both. Jesus died at the hands of individuals with individuals' agendas who lied on him and a Roman government who systemically deprived justice from him and executed him. And he rose for us to personally have relationship with him and to help build a kingdom of justice and righteousness. And he gives us an opportunity to respond. And so I wanted us to stand together. Because you might be here today and you're like, man, I never heard about the role and the importance of Jesus in the gospel in that way. I've always thought it was just some type of spiritual, religious thing. But now that you've heard the realness of what it means to be a part of the kingdom and to affiliate yourself with the king, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to that message. So if you've never put your hope in Jesus and you're in the midst of despair right now, you you look in your own life. We talked a lot about what's happening out there, but there might be storms happening in you that you're just like, that's my reality and I don't see a way out. If you've never put your hope in Jesus, we want to invite you today to step forward. To say, I, I want to, I, I'm drawn to that holistic vision of what it means to experience true peace, true hope, true love. We want you to come up front because it'll give us an opportunity uh, as pastors to pray with you, to pray over you, as a, as a church congregation to encourage you. Is there one today? Just, just if you're in the middle of the aisle, just excuse yourself. We, we, we all here family. We just want to support each other. But what we do want is an opportunity for us on this day to have a reason for the hope that is within you. A reason, a hope that's built on something tangible that will last, that's not just based on your effort, but is based on what has been accomplished on your behalf. Is there one? We will have time to pray uh, after church if there are other needs and concerns that you have. But right now, we just want to invite anybody to be put into the family and and folded in. Is there one? Well, let's praise God for the fact that he is the hope. Amen? Amen. Um, I want to pray uh, for us and with us as we close. God in heaven, we thank you that you have not hidden yourself or ignored the trouble that we feel. We growl and moan and mourn because of the injustices that we see around us. 
that have been done to us. And God, we thank you that you were revealed in your word that you care. You do more than care. You hate injustice and you've done something about it to invite us into the building of a kingdom of a just society that starts with you, Jesus. We pray that this week you would help us to live that out, to flesh that out, and to trust you in deeper and more significant ways. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope this message was encouraging to you. We invite you to send us an email at info at bridgechurchnyc.com so we can hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Our handle on all our social media platforms is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we would love to see you on a Sunday. Our services are at 1030 a.m. and noon on Sundays at 345 Adams Street in downtown Brooklyn. Thanks for listening to our podcast today, and we hope to see you soon.